Christ Jesus our Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are exposed before you. You know our hearts. You know our desires. You know our thoughts. None of them are secret to you. We pray that you would come among us by your Holy Spirit, that you would inspire us with your word, that you would help us to hear your word and to believe it and to follow you, and that we might more perfectly love you and worthily magnify your name this day through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first hymn is number 34, The God of Abraham Praise.
Remember that our Lord Jesus can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, since in every respect he was tempted as we are and yet was without sin. Let us then with boldness approach the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us confess our sin against God and our neighbor. Let us pray together. Holy God, our thoughts and motives cannot be hidden from your sight. Our self-centeredness and pride, our sloth and greed, our anger and jealousy are laid bare before you. We have been arrogant and have set in scornful judgment of others. We have even worshipped the blessings you give us in place of you. Most merciful Lord, forgive all our sins for Christ's sake. Keep us from trusting in anything except Jesus Christ, our Savior. Pour out upon us your mercy and grant that we may be strengthened each day by your Holy Spirit and empowered to walk in the way that is pleasing to you and to serve you in the joy of the new freedom of Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. People of God, hear the good news. Jesus Christ is the one ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And Jesus Christ is the one who died and was raised for us. Jesus Christ is the one in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. People of God, I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel. We say together, praise be to God. Beloved of God, our Lord knows that troubles will arise within the church, and so he taught his disciples, saying, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And we have been taught to put on compassion and kindness, lowliness, meekness, and patience, forbearing one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." It's implicit and sometimes just clearly explained in Scripture that there were disputes and divisions and disagreements in the early church, in those first generation or first uh, decades of the church. So often we romanticize the past, we romanticize the church in the New Testament, but a, uh, even a not careful read, <laughs> but a careful read of Scripture in the New Testament makes it very clear that there were problems going on in those churches as well. Sin does come up in the church. The church is a place where sinners have been brought together in the name of Jesus Christ, and they're forgiven, and they're, they're, um, they're delivered from the sin, the bondage of sin, and they're being healed of that sin. And so uh, we, we will find sin within the church. When that happens, we are to make sure that we follow the Christian teaching that's handed down to us. Do not be dismayed by our troubles and failures that happen in the church. It's what we are. We are people who are weak. We are people who have sinned against God. We are people who struggle with those things. And yet, the difference is we are redeemed. We are forgiven of God. We are reconciled to God. And so now we're in this new relationship, this new, you might say, situation where we can be where the sin can be properly handled 
and we can be confident that that sin is not what dominates us. It is not the final word about the church. We need to remember that because it's very easy for us to see the sin going on in the church and just completely dismiss it. I heard a conversation the other day in McDonald's about two people, Christians, talking about how they don't go to church anymore because the churches have always just, their experience has been the churches have been, um, you know, just problematic and, and sinful and mistreated them and all of this, and that does happen. And yet, we should not abandon the church because that's the community of God's grace. That's the place where the means of grace are at work. That's what we need to receive to be uh, where the Holy Spirit is working on us and, and, and helping us build together as the body of Christ. So when sin does come up in the church, let us practice the grace and forgiveness of God that he's given to us in Jesus Christ. Let us remember that what Christ has done is ultimate for us, not the sin that we experience in the church. Every single one of us must listen to God's call to bear one another's sin and to be um, willing to deal with that sin when it comes up in the church. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 486, God Be Merciful to Me. God be merciful to me, on thy grace I rest my plea. Plenteous in compassion thou, blot out my transgressions now. Wash me, make me pure within, cleanse, oh cleanse me from my sin. My transgressions I confess, grief and guilt my soul sinned against thy grace and provoke thee to thy face I confess thy judgment just speechless I thy mercy trust I am evil born in sin thou desirest truth within Thou alone, my Savior, art. Teach thy wisdom to my heart. Make me pure, thy grace bestow. Wash me whiter than the snow. Broken, humble to the dust. By thy wrath and judgment just, let my contrite heart rejoice, and in gladness hear thy voice. From my sins, O hide thy face, blot me out in boundless grace. Gracious God, my heart renew, make my spirit right and true. Cast me not away from thee, let thy spirit dwell in me. Thy salvation will impart.
then shall learn from me and return, O God, to Thee. Savior, all my guilt remove, and my tongue shall sing Thy love. Touch my silent lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall praise accord. Let us bring our petitions to our Heavenly Father. Merciful Father, we thank you for your gifts to us this week. The kind words from friends and strangers, the food and cheer that refreshes our bodies and souls for the nice weather these past two days. We thank you for our Savior whose pardon we have received and who endured the attacks of others and the hardness of man's heart and the little faith of his disciples. We bless you that he did not give up on us or abandon his journey to the cross, but remembered our captivity and sin and went on to set us free. We follow him now as he frequently bowed his head and prayed to you for his mission and for the needs of others. Now we bow our heads with him and pray for the needs of those in this world. O Lord, as you created this world and have not, shown, uh, not given up on it, but in fact you redeem it in Jesus Christ, We pray you would preserve your moral order of right and wrong, including the order of humanity that it is male and female, and that you would grant us just government with policies not based in ideologies but in the reality of your creation. We pray for the reclamation of moral order in our society and pray that as Christ is proclaimed, that would be increased. We pray for the situations in this world for the turbulence of the nations that they would be calmed by your power we pray that peace would be known in ukraine north korea china philadelphia chicago new orleans metro detroit and other cities in our nation we pray for the reclamation of marriage from deviant pleasures so that husbands love their wives and wives honor their husbands for the good of the family and society We pray for the respect of unborn infants, for immigrants, for Asians, for Jews, for African Americans, and the elderly as sacred human lives. We pray for for these and other concerns in this world and ask that you would hear our prayers. We bring our petitions to you for those who rule over us. For Joe Biden, our president, for Gary Peters and Debbie Stabenow, our senators, for Gretchen Whitmer, our governor, we pray that they would lead with humility, justice, and honesty. We pray that morally good decisions would be made by our Congress and our Supreme Court, and we pray that the poor would be truly helped. Hear our prayers. Our Father, keep and lead the Church of Jesus Christ in this world. May it grow and bear good influence wherever it is gathered. Let the word of Christ be proclaimed by the Church's preaching and celebration of the Lord's Supper, by baptism, and in our deeds as we serve you. And may this world turn to you in faith and repentance. We do pray for our missionaries in Uganda, Charles Jackson, James Folkert, Chris Verdick, Mark Essendelf, for Leah Hopp and Tina DeYoung, Angela Voskul, 
we pray that they would be safe and able to move about freely and be able to teach Christ. We also pray in our presbytery for Steve Igo, Jerry Newmeyer, McNearham at Cedar OPC in Jenison, John, John Terrell at Living Hope, the mission work there. We also pray for Harvest and its ministers. Hear our prayers for our missionaries and for our presbytery. Gracious Lord, we are frail and we falter as we follow you. Our needs are many. We pray for your merciful care. Heal those who are sick, frail in body, troubled in soul. We do pray for Luca, for Eduardo, for Jeff and Fawn and Bob, for Julie, and for our friends, Michelle and Becky, for Tammy's family, for Karen and Tom and Dominique, Chris and Phil, Bob, and others we name to you one by one. Strengthen us all in body and soul to be faithful followers of Christ. Keep us together, bind us together in Christ as, his, as your family. Help us, O blessed Lord. We entrust ourselves to you, O Father, asking and praying as our Lord Jesus Christ has taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
And now we come to our prayer for illumination as we prepare to hear God's word read and preached. Let us pray. Father, your word, your words are not idle words to us, so say the scriptures. They are um, words of life. And we pray that by your spirit, you would make your word alive to us and us alive to your word this morning. And as we sang earlier, teach thy wisdom to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We begin in the book of Daniel. Chapter 1. Hear now God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in, his, in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans." The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned you your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink 
and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were all in his were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That ends our reading in Daniel. We turn now to our Psalter reading. Praise the Lord. Who greatly delights in his commandments. The generation of the upright will be blessed. And his righteousness endures forever. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Who conducts his affairs with justice. He will be remembered forever. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. His righteousness endures forever. The wicked man sees it and is angry. The desire of the wicked will perish. We turn now to our reading in James. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And now our gospel reading in Matthew, chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The word of the Lord. We've come to the book of Daniel. We'll be hearing a number of sermons on the book of Daniel with the time of celebrating Christ's resurrection, sort of breaking that, um, that uh, series. But we will be going through the book of Daniel, hearing it preached. One way to interpret the book of Daniel is by beginning with the events of our own day. We begin, if you follow this method, we begin with ourselves and our contemporary situation, then we read it into Daniel. This has happened many times over the centuries of God's people reading and preaching the book of Daniel. It's not just Christians who've done this. Jews have done this as well when they've worked with the book of Daniel. It is a technique most popular with apocalyptic types of literature in the Bible like Ezekiel, Zechariah, Revelation, and Daniel. Another approach is to sit and listen to Daniel and what it has to say in its own right and receive what it has to give to us. And I believe that's how the Holy Spirit brings the word of God to us. And therefore, that's how I'm going to preach Daniel. So if you're looking for um, talks about tanks and helicopters and Russia, you're not going to get it in this series of sermons. Daniel and his friends found themselves in a pagan society. The book of Daniel does not say much about how they got there. It does say that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And from the larger context of the Old Testament, we can easily come up with some reasons why the people of God were conquered by the Babylonians, but Daniel doesn't go much into that. The only reason Daniel gives is in verse 2, where he says, God gave King Jehoiakim of Judah into the king of Babylon's hands. The king was the head of Judah, therefore, to give the king was to give the nation of Judah into Babylon's hands. The king of Babylon also took articles from the temple in Jerusalem. We can read about these articles in Jeremiah chapter 52. There it says that things things of precious metals and and different uh, objects that were in the temple, like the pillars of bronze, the large basin that was called the Bronze Sea, a huge basin, basin, that uh, was described as the Bronze Sea, dishes for incense, small bowls, fire pans, lampstands, bowls for libations, you know, offerings, and sacred decorative objects in the temple. These were all taken, and they were made with bronze, silver, gold, copper. They were taken from the Jews as tribute, but there was also a religious reason why they were taken. It was a sign of victory of one king and his god over another king, and his God. In other words, taking the vessels from the temple was a sign of the victory of Nebuchadnezzar and his God over Israel and its God, Yahweh. That's how this would have been understood in that ancient Near Eastern context. The book of Daniel simply asserts that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Daniel and his friends found themselves in a pagan society. And it was a society oriented around the Babylonian king and his gods. And those two principal gods were Bel and Marduk. These gods were national gods. They were the gods of Babylon. 
This was a religion that presumed each kingdom had its king and its own god or gods. And so when one kingdom attacked another kingdom, it wasn't just the kings and their armies that were engaged in battle. It was also the gods from each kingdom that were at war. Because Babylon defeated Israel, the Babylonians believed they were superior to Israel and its god. Our lesson refers to Babylon as the land of Shinar in verse 2. And the Old Testament in several places speaks of Shinar as a place of false religion, self-will, and self-pride. The land of Shinar is where the temple of Babel was built in Genesis 11. It's where the people there wanted to build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Against God, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. Shinar is a place where life is in opposition to the God of Israel. And there they were, Daniel and his friends in the pagan society of Babylon. But the king of Babylon was not just content to let them be. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to assimilate the Jews into the Babylonian society. And to do this, he would start with the young nobles and leaders from Judea. The king commanded his chief officer to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. And to the court officer, so the court officer selected Daniel and his friends among other Jews. Daniel and his friends were noblemen. They were from the ruling families of the Jews, and they were young. The king wanted the Jewish youth because the youth are more easily manipulated. Conviction and practice has not had enough time to settle into youth, and therefore they can be easily retrained and assimilated into new beliefs and into a new society. Educators know this. It's easier to convince the young than the old. Politicians know this, and so they try to stir up the youth to follow their causes. Activists know this, so they try to recruit the young into their service. In the months before the last election in November, as I traveled about shopping, going to different stores, I noticed that almost all of the, young, all of the people standing outside of business establishments asking us to sign their petitions were young. Did you notice that? King Nebuchadnezzar shows us that this is a time-honored practice. Manipulate the young, and eventually you can change a people. The king wanted the Jewish youth to be educated in the ways of the Babylonian court and society. The king wanted the young noblemen from Israel who were already trained in political life. They were noble noblemen because uh, they'd already been trained in political life, and he wanted them because they, were already, they already showed they had ability and knowledge. He said, be sure they are skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. He wanted to start with something that was already, uh, already had some substance to it. Once these young men were found, the king wanted them to be taught, provided for, trained, and renamed in the Babylonian society. In effect, the king wanted to Babylonianize the young nobles of Israel, that, uh, my word processor would not accept that as a word. <laughs> the king wanted to Babylonianize the young nobles of Israel. He wanted to make them Babylonians who serve him and his gods. And this was not just to strengthen his court. It was another way of conquering Israel and its God. The young Jewish men were to be educated by the wise men and priests of Babylon, and the eunuchs were part of that caste, part of that group. 
They would learn such things as Babylonian history and mathematics, astronomy, medicine, myth, and writing. And all of this wasn't just for the sake of knowledge. It was for practical purposes of astrology, divining the future by studying animal organs, rites of purification, sacrifices, incantations, and other forms of divination and magic. The Babylonian wise men were the ones that were called up by Nebuchadnezzar later in the book of Daniel when the king had his dreams. If you've read Daniel, you know he had some dreams, chapter 2, chapter 4. And he calls upon his wise men to figure it out. What do these dreams mean? And this is what uh, he wanted, the king wanted these Jewish noblemen to be trained to do. Convert the future leaders, draw in the young, and there will be no more Israel and its God. Daniel and his friends found themselves in a pagan kingdom that had conquered, conquered Israel and was trying to absorb them into itself. Now, there are four important words in this story from Daniel, and they're in the words in verse 2 that say, And the Lord gave. These four words undermine the power and the pride of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. With these words, Daniel tells us that the God of Israel is not a national God confined to the region of Judah. He is not restricted to Israel. The God of Israel is the Lord over all the nations, including Babylon. The Lord was ruling also in the sphere of Babylon. He was not stuck back in the land of Israel with his people taken away. He wasn't stuck back in Israel like a dog that is confined behind a buried electric fence. The book of Daniel tells us the king of Babylon did not conquer Israel and its God, Yahweh. Yahweh is the sovereign Lord over the nations who gave Israel to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar. The Hebrew names of Daniel and his friends bear witness to God's sovereignty. The name Daniel means God is my judge. The name Hananiah means Yah, as in Yahweh, has been gracious. The name Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means Yah, or Yahweh, has helped. God put his people into the pagan society of Babylon. Now, today we find ourselves in the post-Christian society of America. And in recent years, it is a society that has become more hostile to Christianity. There are powerful figures who triumphantly claim that they have defeated Christianity and the church. It's only a matter of time before we're all gone. After the Supreme Court decision in Obergefell v. Hodge in 2015, forces against the church hailed it as a decisive victory and a sign of the downfall of the church in America. And Christians bemoan the loss of Christian influence and dominance in America. The standard thinking is that we have been on a long, slow decline away from a Christian society. And we search for how this happened. We search our own hearts. We search, we try to figure out why and how has this happened. Did the church become soft and susceptible in its material comfort? Well, yes, I think that's probably fair. Is God punishing us, perhaps? Did we give into the secular culture one step at a time? Yep, probably. But if we listen to Daniel, we must consider that the Lord gave us to post-Christian society. 
God put us here. Just like Daniel and his friends found themselves in a pagan society. Daniel tells us that God is the sovereign Lord over post-Christian society where we find ourselves today. And in spite of anti-Christians celebrating their victory over the Christian church and our God, God is the one ruling over this society. And therefore, because God is ruling over American society and its leaders, we can faithfully serve him in it. The tendency is to run, and there's a lot of conversation about that, to separate ourselves from this non-Christian society. The thought is that as Christians, we mustn't serve in its government. We mustn't interact in its commerce. We mustn't participate in its education, in its secular knowledge, in its wisdom. But that's not what Daniel tells us. It tells us that God put Daniel and his friends into the Babylonian pagan society with its government, its courts, and its knowledge. We don't need to flee post-Christian society. God put us in it. Babylonian society attempted to assimilate the Jewish youth into their society. Now, it sounds benign enough, especially in our secular society and secular world today. The message we hear today is that societies and cultures are different. They're not good or bad. They're just different. They are neutral. And therefore, we can move from one to another. Indeed, there are many good things in every society and culture. Cultures have language or languages. They have knowledge, traditions, distinctive foods, rituals that all have good things about them. Secular society considers religion a cultural practice, and as long as it fits into society, then it's good, according to them. And Christianity has proved, proven itself highly adaptable to many different kinds of societies and Christians. If you've traveled in, at all in this world, even to Mexico, maybe Canada counts as a you know, foreign country, it's too much like us, but if you travel at all and go to a Christian church there, even if you don't know the language, you'll recognize, unless it's become very wacky, you'll recognize Christian distinctive practices and things being done in church, like reading the Bible in worship or hearing a sermon or coming to the Lord's table, these kinds of things. You'll recognize them, and you might hear the different languages. You might see the different clothes and the names and the sounds of the songs might sound different and all that, and yet you, you realize this is a Christian church. It's, it's highly adaptable into these different kinds of cultures. The problem comes when a society wants to assimilate us into its anti-Christian faith and practice, and that is what King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do with the Jews. He wanted to Babylonianize the Jews, and he asked Ashpenaz to get it done. Ashpenaz was the chief eunuch. The eunuchs were members of the Babylonian court. Ashpenaz was expected to make Daniel and his friends become part of that court, become a feature of that court. The Babylonian society was not secular. It was committed to the king and the gods of Babylon, and we must not overlook that point. Babylonian society was a religious society. It had gods and it had faith commitments. And as far as the king and the Babylonians saw it, they had conquered the Jews, and so now the Jews were to submit to Babylonian society, to its gods, and to its faith. Religious faith is deeply intertwined in all of this. And so, therefore, we might extol the benefits of a secular society, and there are some benefits to secular society. However, even secular societies have faith commitments that they expect everyone to believe. 
In American secular society today, there is a strong belief among many that the state must control and manage churches, religious organizations. It wasn't always like that, but it seems to be very strong today. There is the commitment to the government keeping uh, the commitment to the government keeping its hands off churches and religious organizations is being replaced with a commitment to make Christians affirm secular beliefs like a progressive God, a God who's right in step with us as we progress towards whatever belief, uh, things that we think we should attain, or fluid gender identity or abortion. All these things are um, things that many believe the government should enforce with the churches and make them either accept or be silent. There is some indication of how the Babylonian court was going to assimilate the Jewish youths into its culture. It was by flooding them with the cultural, moral, and religious beliefs and practices of the Babylonians. Flooding them. If you want to manipulate a people to become what you are, then you re-educate them, and that would be a constant program. Train them in your morality. You give them your food to eat. You rename them, and you make them dependent on you. And that's what the Babylonian court was doing or trying to do. Verse 4 says the eunuchs were to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Literature is probably a little misleading. The chronicles, the official uh, history and and, uh, religious understanding of the, the history of Babylon And then verse 5 says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine he drank. And verse 7 says they renamed Daniel and his friends. This was an assimilation process, and it would defile the Jewish youths. In the Babylonian court, there were moral and religious activities, and these included, included worshiping other gods like Marduk and Bel. It might involve murder by offering human sacrifices to their gods. I think by this time, that practice had sort of subsided, but it still maybe happened on occasion. But in the history of Babylon, back in the days uh, when it was beginning, it definitely had human sacrifice to Marduk in particular. It it meant coming into contact with corpses, dead bodies uh, of animals, because the Babylonian sages studied animal organs in order to divine the future and the will of their gods. It's, it's something like, the word is something like eretiology or something. You can look it up, but it's of an ancient practice of looking at the organs, and then you can see any defects, or if you learn how to properly assess the organs inside of an animal that's been cut open, you can divine the future and know what's going to happen. And you hear about this practice in a lot of the ancient cultures. And so it was happening in Babylon but that meant you had to touch the dead animals. And pork was part of the Babylonian diet. And also those who accepted the palace provisions conceded that they were dependent on the king. And they were committed to his support. So there were many moral and religious practices in Babylon that would have violated the holiness code of the law of Moses and thus defiled the Jews. And just like the Jewish youth in Babylon, assimilation into a post-Christian society can, not automatically, but can violate Christian faith and morality. The Babylonian system of assimilation was powerful, but God gave Daniel and his friends the opportunity to maintain their faith in that pagan society. Verse 9 is another one of those God gave verses. There are three of them, and this is the second one. God gave 
It says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel and his friends chose not to eat the court's diet. And food is one of those important things that determines identity. So even in our multicultural society, we understand this. On Friday night, you and your friends discuss going out to eat, and the options are batted around. You you trade it around. Do you want Asian food, Mexican food, soul food, Italian food, or that good old American standard, the hamburger? But you see what you're doing there. You're identifying food with a particular group of people. God was working in the sphere of Babylonian society, and he gave Daniel and his friends a way to remain faithful to God and his law. They were allowed to only consume vegetables and water. Now, Ashpenaz was nervous about not fulfilling the king's order because, as the text says, he might lose his head, literally. But he gave them permission to eat a different diet as long as he could check on them later. And God blessed Daniel and his friends' commitment and faithfulness to him. Now, we must not think that God always gives us such opportunities. Sometimes Christians must be martyrs for Christ, and we need to remember that in the worldwide scope of Christianity, that there are plenty of Christians who do not get the opportunity like this. They have to die, and they do die for Christ. A non-Christian society can be so completely opposed to the Christian church that it relentlessly persecutes Christians, and that's the case in North Korea, in Pakistan, and Iran. Yet God often does give Christians opportunities to remain in a non-Christian society while still being faithful to him. God gave Daniel the opportunity to draw a line in order to be faithful to God. The line he drew was not about asceticism. Sometimes this has been read that way. It's not about asceticism or a healthy diet. Daniel did not, uh, did not assume a vegetarian diet so that he could know God better. It was about assimilation into a pagan society. And Daniel drew a line that said he would remain committed to the God of Israel and not assimilate. God gives us opportunities to remain faithful in non-Christian societies. And the lines are not always the same. If you read through the New Testament, you can see the apostles instructing the churches about some of these lines. And it's not always exactly the same line because the churches are in different places with different issues going on. The apostle Paul drew one such line for the Corinthian church. He said to the church in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. And that seems pretty like that would be true for any church. But the letters to the churches in Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, have several such lines in them. With some of the lines, uh, some of the churches in those letters, the lines had to do with syncretism. They were not to adopt false teaching along with the teaching handed down to the church by the apostles. Another line in Revelation is is is, is not tolerating works of immorality. And one church is told not to eat food sacrificed to idols. Paul, in his letters, talks about how there is a freedom to eat the food that comes from the marketplace that would have been offered to the idols. But for your sake of your brother, who's weaker in conscience, not to do that. But he says you could do that as long as you're not offending your brother. But Revelation makes it clear, just draws a line there for those churches not to do that. And that gets into the issues of what the sacrifice was all about. And in some cases, the church, all the people in the Roman Empire were expected to bring offerings and sacrifices to the little shrine or altar in their town for the Roman emperor. That's a little bit of a different matter. 
And so they were told not to do that. Those are lines that are being drawn for the church in the New Testament. Today, Christians also must draw lines in our post-Christian society. You must draw lines in our post-Christian society. And one such line is attending Sunday worship. Our society has increasingly made Sunday just another day of the week And rather than worship God, we are pushed to work and play and do the other things that a non-Christian society does instead of worship God. Sunday worship has become very, very optional. In a post-Christian society, there is tremendous pressure not to worship God. It's a line that we must draw in our society, and it may require sacrifice. We We had a former member of this church who throughout his life, he was an older man, worked many jobs, but he always told his employers that he would not work on Sunday because he wanted to be present in the church's worship. Usually, he was hired. However, sometimes his managers would ask him to work on a Sunday, and he would politely remind them of his condition for employment, and some of his employers would honor it. A few let him go when they realized that they would not be able to make him compromise. Another line that Christians must draw in our society today is blending our faith with the faith of other religions. Hopefully, we will have dialogue and conversations with people who are Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and so on, but we cannot say we worship the same God. Our society pushes us to believe that all religions lead to the same divine power, and we must draw the line. Jesus Christ is the only way to God and his mercy and love. Another line is honoring Christian marriage and a Christian understanding of sex. The post-Christian society turns sex mostly into an act of self-gratification. Promiscuity is a pursuit and sort of a, a, something to brag about. Marriage is a romantic commitment that lasts as long as it feels good. Christians must draw that line and uphold marriage as a solemn bond between a man and a woman where sex is rightly practiced and children are welcome. There are other lines that we will have to draw between commitment to Jesus Christ and our post-Christian society. And in some cases, these lines will have to be particular for your situation. They won't necessarily apply to all Christians. It will be in your particular situation, there will have to be a line drawn. In other cases, we will have to draw those lines together. We've already drawn some of them, but we need to be aware of it. You must draw lines in our society like Daniel. God is at work in our post-Christian society. He gives us opportunities to draw Christian lines in the society, and he gives us wisdom. Just like he gave Daniel and his friends. Verse 17, the other God gave. God gave them knowledge and discernment in all kinds of literature and wisdom. This doesn't mean that they had a book reading club, okay? This is not talking about that. God, they were given a particular wisdom that was related to the court, and to the whole faith commitment and, and uh, whole sus- pagan society of Babylon. God gave a special gift to Daniel, the ability to understand dreams and visions, and that's why Daniel is ranked among the prophets in the Old Testament. But God gave something to all of them, and that was wisdom. And this is not common wisdom. There is common wisdom that, that can be discerned and, and learned in God's creation, and, and God makes that accessible to all kinds of people. But this is not common wisdom. It's divinely revealed knowledge about life. It is revealed insight into history, politics, society, how to get along with other people, science, business, etc. And it's not 
for a parallel politics, wisdom, society, science, and business. It's wisdom for these things in society, even in a post-Christian society. Daniel did not try to create a life opposite Babylonian society. Verse 20 says that Daniel and his friends used the wisdom of God that he gave them in the court of the king. And the king found the wisdom of Daniel and his friends ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. God gives us wisdom to use in our post-Christian society. Our epistle lesson from James says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Do we take that seriously? Do we recognize when we need wisdom and we don't have it? And then ask God for it. Jesus gave wisdom to his disciples, such as in our gospel lesson, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. And God gives wisdom to us with his word in the preaching of scripture. He also gives wisdom to us through Christian conversation in the fellowship of the church as you talk to each other and share your questions and, and, and problems and how do we deal with this in society and all that. God gives wisdom in that Christian spirit-filled fellowship. Pray and ask God to give you wisdom in your work situation, in your relationships, in your business dealings, in political issues, and how to respond to the belligerent in our post-Christian society. And it's not wisdom to be locked up in secret or only kept inside the church. This kind of wisdom is for the improvement of the society we live in. When we share this wisdom in our society, over time it will prove to be greater than the ways of those opposed to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, who is the fountain of all wisdom, you know our needs before we ask and our ignorance in asking. Have compassion on our weakness and mercifully grant to us the courage to stand firm as Christians where we live and wisdom to discern how to live well in our society while remaining faithful to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith. Having heard the word of God, let us confess what we believe. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 140, O Word of God Incarnate.
Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our new life and salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is our joy and our peace and our great delight at all times and all places to give thanks to you, Holy Father, Almighty, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We bless you for your continual love and care for every creature. We praise you for forming us in your image and calling us to be your people. We thank you that you did not abandon us in our rebellion against you, but sent prophets and teachers to lead us into the way of salvation. 
Above all, we thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to deliver us from the way of sin and death by the obedience of his life, by his suffering upon the cross, and by his resurrection from the dead. We praise you that he now reigns with you in glory and ever lives to pray and intercede for us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who leads us into truth and defends us in adversity and out of every nation unites us into one holy church. Therefore, with the whole company of saints in heaven and on earth, we worship and glorify you, God most holy, and we sing with joy, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. We thank you that our worship is joined with that worship in heaven, for those who have gone before us stand in your presence. We give thanks to God the Father that our Savior Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again, and we do as he commands. We proclaim that our Lord Jesus was sent by the Father into the world, that he took upon himself our flesh and blood, and bore the wrath of God against our sin. We confess that he was condemned to die that we might be pardoned and suffer death that we might live. We proclaim that he is risen to make us right with you, O God, and that he shall come again in the glory of his new creation. And we do this now and we shall continue to do it until he comes again. Heavenly Father, show forth yourself among us the presence of your life-giving word and Holy Spirit. Sanctify us in your whole church with the sacrament. Grant that all who share the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, may be one in him and may remain faithful in love and hope. And as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf, and these grapes from many hills into one cup, grant, O Lord, that we, your whole church, may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. So we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, and we offer our thanksgiving together, saying, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after breaking it, he said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he bore our sin, gave us grace, and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup show others the true vine. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope you have set before us so that we... And all your children shall be free, and the whole earth live to praise your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 165, the servants of God, your master proclaimer.
Please be seated. I'm looking at the bulletin uh, in the uh, in our worship folder, and um, first of all, today, immediately after um, announcements and a time of preparation, we will enjoy our fellowship meal. So please join us for that. The Thursday night Bible study is here at the church at 7 p.m. this week. Um, The women's prayer meeting, Thursday morning prayer meeting, is this week at the Roberts home. Please remember the prison ministry in the way of outreach. Also, that we might have a connection uh, nearby at Lawrence Tech um, to be able to do outreach with students there. We need a we need a student um, to sort of open that process for us. So we're trying to identify a student who might do that. Um, and finally, the session has indicated um, a desire to draw the congregation into a conversation um, concerning the future of the church, and we're currently talking, uh, deliberating about that, and want to get a date to you in the very near future um, for a Sunday where after worship, instead of Christian Ed, we'll have a meeting and a conversation together. So that's, stay tuned. It's in the works. Uh, I would um, encourage you, as always, but especially now, to be pray, 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 pray. Pray for the church is on the west side of our presbytery. Um, there's a lot going on over there. I can't talk about all of it, um, but um, you know, there's, there are things going on with multiple churches, uh, somewhat related and somewhat not. So please be praying. I, you know, you know about Harvest, you know something about it, but there are other churches too. So God can break down your prayer, but if you pray generally for them, please remember them in your prayer. Do not ignore what's going on and. and Bring your prayers to God for them to have unity, humility, um, to be able to have a fair hearing of uh, some of the concerns that are coming from some people against other churches. Um, This is unusual, but um, that needs to be done. So please be praying for them. And I'm involved in it, in some aspects of it, sort of in the inside. Um, So pray for me as we interact with uh, some of the sessions and and all that. Please. Julie. This may be a really foolish question, and if so, I'm sorry, but how far does the western part of our presbytery? So Julie wants to know where the western side of our presbytery is. Our presbytery is Michigan, um, Ontario, which basically is about four churches uh, sort of on this side of Toronto. And then a one or two churches in Indiana, northern Indiana. And so our boundary goes over to Lake Michigan. And the churches I'm talking about are all around Grand Rapids or that, that corner of the state. That helps. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for clarifying. I was thinking Portland or something. <laughs> well, pray for Portland, too. <laughs> western Michigan is the western boundary, pretty much. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>